Good afternoon. It's afternoon now. Um, well, welcome again. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for uh, this worship time. Uh, let's continue our worship uh, by opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 31 through 35. Uh, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so you guys can find that on your apps. Mark 3, verses 31 through 35. So up to this point in Jesus' ministry, we're seeing a familiar pattern of, of those that are opposing Jesus. The opponents of Jesus are, are typically uh, the religious leaders, uh, the religious expert of his days. And so they're always monitoring Jesus, uh, just wanting to catch him slip up so that they can disqualify and discredit his ministry. And so we're going to see this again and again in the gospel narratives of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and their scribes, always competing with Jesus, right? Today, what we're going to see in our passage is a different form of opposition that comes from a very familiar source. Uh, it's, it's a bit astonishing and shocking, the opposition uh, that, that he's about to face in the passage that we're going to read. So let's give our full attention as I read God's holy word for us, starting at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, uh, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Amen. All right, talk about an awkward situation. All right. Once again, we're seeing uh, the all-too-familiar reversal in the Gospels um, of what, what is conventional and expected. And, and the Gospel is going to do this to us again and again, where they flip things upside down. The people we expect to see on the inside in fellowship with Jesus is actually on the outside. The people that we expect to be on the outside are actually invited inside to have fellowship with Jesus. This is the gospel reversal. And the people in this situation, they're obviously they're uncomfortable, right? Because they're saying, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you, right? And, and the, the natural thing to do in this culture is to go out, right, and, and greet your mother and your brothers and then invite them in. But instead, we see Jesus doing something completely different. It's, it's, he seemingly ignores them, and then he has the, uh, the audacity to redefine who his family is. Right? This, is this is offensive. What, what is Jesus doing here? So the question I want to ask us and for us to consider is, how do I get on the inside? How do I get, on, get in with Jesus, to be a part of his family, to be considered his mother, his brother, or sister. How can I be a part of Jesus' family? Right, Because there's, there's no greater honor and privilege to be considered family of God. Right? It's one thing for us to be considered citizens of his kingdom or to be a part of his kingdom. It's a whole other thing to say that I am Jesus' brother, I am Jesus' sister, I am Jesus' mother. Because there are far greater benefits when you're family with Jesus than just being a, a whatever acquaintance or a, a citizen of his kingdom. But this is what the gospel offers. That you can be 
a child of God, that you can be a part of Jesus' family. So the question is, how do I do this? How can I be a member of Jesus' family? And the answer is this, very simply. It is by responding in faith to Jesus' call to discipleship. It's to respond in faith to the call to discipleship. Now, many, many commentators and even many pastors will look at this passage and want to focus on the idea of family. That is not the focus. The focus is actually discipleship. And so what Jesus is going to do here, he's going to redefine family with this idea of discipleship. Discipleship is going to be the redefinition of what he considers to be family. So what does the call of discipleship entail? How do we respond? Three things for us this morning. It It calls us to a new allegiance. The call to discipleship calls us to a new allegiance. Secondly, it calls us to joyful obedience. And lastly, it calls us to a stronger union. So new allegiance, joyful obedience, and stronger union. This is a call to discipleship. So first, the call to discipleship is a call to a new allegiance. Uh, Now, one of the first things that we learn in premarital counseling is this biblical idea and model of marriage, where you leave your origins, your family of origins, and you cleave to your spouse. This is Genesis chapter 2. And one of the first things that we learn in premarital counseling is that you're not, your families are not fusing together. You're not absorbing each other into each other's family, but you're actually starting a new family with your spouse. Now, this is very, very important. But this was a very difficult concept for me because I grew up living with my grandparents. My mother got absorbed into my father's family. And that was very challenging for her. But growing up, that was a con- concept that I had about marriage. Oh, it's just, you're just fusing each other's family. And that's why when someone gets engaged, right, and you're related to, or uh, let's say, this really happened this weekend. My cousin got engaged. And, uh, and uh, his name is Brian, right? His fiance, or her fiance's name is Brian. And one of the first things that Jane texted to him was what? Welcome to the family, Right? Welcome to the family. Now that I understand, like that's that's what we always say to to a person that's now joining, right, our family. But the more biblical, uh, appropriate response to anyone that got engaged or is getting married is, "Congrats on your new family." That should be the the more accurate, right? Congratulations, not welcome to the family, but congrats on your new family. But growing up, this was very difficult for me. And also growing up, family came first. Everyone and anything else was a distant second, right? And so the transition for me in marriage was very difficult because it's, it's calling for me to separate from my previous life, right, and to start a new life with Jane. But what ends up happening, and this is the case for almost every marriage, is your previous life bleeds into your new family. Isn't that true? Whether it's living habits, household responsibilities, roles of the husband and wife, how to raise children, finances. You look back at your previous experience, you can't help but bring that into your new relationship with your wife or your husband. And so there are a lot of people now engaged in this church. Congratulations. And there are some of us that are newlyweds. A word of advice for just the men, right? Just the men. A quick way to find yourself on the couch, sleeping at night by yourself, is to utter these three words. But my mom, right? Take your pillow, take your blanket, and go to the couch, right? You're on timeout, 
Now, that is a huge no-no in the beginning of your relationship. But my mom used to, but how my mom did things, oh, no, you're, you're, you're going to be in the doghouse for a long time. And, and I learned this the hard way. <laughs> I actually said these words to Jane early on in my marriage. This idea of marriage is you leave your family of origin and you cleave to your wife. But it's natural. It's natural for us to carry our past experiences and expectations into our new marriage. But sooner or later, you're going to find out that these are in direct competition with one another. There's going to be a collision happening. And you're going to have to figure things out. You're just going to have to work it out. Jane had her experience. I have my experience. We need to figure out how we're going to do this together as a new family. Irregardless of our past experiences. In our passage today, Jesus finds himself in this collision. He's confronted by his own family. And here he redefines the conventional understanding of familial relationships. He challenges the preconceived notions and expectations of what it means to be family. Verse 31 again. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, any good son in first century Palestine in this culture would have gone out, greeted them, asked the crowd to part, invited them in. Right? Any good son in this culture would have done that. And the people around them were just so uncomfortable. Your family's outside. You should, be, you should invite them in. They should be on the inside. But that's not what Jesus does. How Jesus responds is a complete shock to everyone around him. You don't say no to your mom. You don't say no to your mom. So when we read this passage by itself, we're a bit confused, right? We're a little bit, why does Jesus respond in this brash and kind of cold way towards his family? See, this is not the first time his family is looking for him. This is actually the second time in this chapter. So if you, go to verse 20, uh, if you go to verse 20 and 21, this is what it says. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, and so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. His family has been looking for him. Why? Because they wanted to seize him, because they thought he was out of his mind. That is not hyperbole. In the Greek, literally, they thought that he was mentally deranged. That he was crazy. That he, he was just out of his mind. And so they went out to seize him. To dictate what he does. To control him. And it is known that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. John chapter 7, you guys can read it. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe his claims to be the Messiah, to be the Son of Man, who has the authority to forgive sins. And I can't blame them. I have a younger brother. And my brother came to me and says, hey, David, your sons are forgiven. I'll, I'll punch him. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, you, have, you have no authority over my life, right? We, can't miss, we cannot miss the weight of this exchange that Jesus has with his family. What Jesus is doing here is challenging the very source in which an individual would identify himself, which is family. The Eastern culture, the Eastern worldview is family is of what, what's the most important thing is family. That's why whenever you see names of people in the Bible, what's followed after their name? 
son of, right? James and, James and John, son of Zebedee. Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Why? Because in this culture, how you primarily identify yourself is not your credentials, is not your resume, is not your abilities. It's actually your family, who you belong to. Absolute value is placed in one's family. There is no honor without family honor. And many of us who come from an Eastern culture, we understand this. And so what Jesus does here is offensive. It's totally offensive. If my mom came and she's calling outside, hey, David, I want to see you, right? It's just too crowded. And, I, and, and she hears me say, who's my mother? My mother are the woman here, right? She would cry. She would be devastated. But not only that, people that understand this culture, especially Asian culture, you will hear a collective, that's a bad son. How can a son say that? Absolute value was placed in one's family. So it's a question right here. It's a question. Jesus is faced and confronted with a question. Where is Jesus' alliance or allegiance? Where is Jesus' allegiance? Where does it lie? Is it with his family or is it with his Father in heaven? That is what the, the, the dilemma that Jesus is facing here. Is he going to respond to his family or is he going to remain faithful to his heavenly Father? Because right now, they are in direct competition. Jesus' family wanted to stop him from his ministry. So where does Jesus' allegiance lie? Who is going to remain loyal to? See, Jesus' allegiance was to God and God alone. Even his family could not change him or change his path and his mission. They were trying to obstruct his mission and his faithfulness to his Father. See, the truth is, there are many things in our lives that are competing with our allegiance to God. Many of these old allegiances are carried from our old life, our previous life before knowing Christ. These are old affections, old loyalties that are at odds with our discipleship to Christ. They're incompatible. See, Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to an exclusive allegiance to him and him alone. It calls us to denounce our old allegiances and fully devote ourselves to Christ. There, there's no, there is no other way that discipleship works. See, Jesus faced with his own family and their expectation was unwavering in his allegiance to his Father. And as disciples of Christ, we are to reflect this type of allegiance to Christ. So brothers and sisters, friends, who or what do you swear your allegiance to? Who or what do you swear your allegiance to? Who or what dictates the way that you live your lives? That very thing, that person or idea we swear our lives to will exercise authority in our lives. It, 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 will, it will influence every aspect of our lives, how we make decisions, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. Whatever we swear our allegiance to will rule and control your life. And so for some of us here today, family and community is that very thing that we swear our allegiance to. We devote ourselves entirely to their happiness, success, comfort, and approval. So this is how it works. The reason I work 
is for them. I want to provide them a better life. We schedule our entire lives around our children's activities. We want to do everything to accommodate to our children's activities. Even if it means for us to miss Sundays, miss small groups, or other faith-based activities, because family is ultimate to me, those are necessary sacrifices. My decisions are made based on what I think will win the approval of my family or my community. To have their disapproval will destroy me. Doesn't this sound like a religion? But those that aren't part of the Eastern culture, and many of us were kind of a mix, but we are part of the Western culture that elevates individual, the self. So our allegiance then is to myself, my time, my career, my money, my pleasures and my comforts, and my sense of purpose. That is what is ultimate in my life. So I pledge allegiance to myself. The reason I work is to prove my self-worth. The reason I work is so that I have meaning and purpose in my life, for me. Relationships are valid based on what they can offer me. If a relationship inconveniences me or is uncomfortable, forget it. Forget it. Even if it means for me to miss Sundays, small groups, service opportunities to serve other people, because my life is ultimate, those are necessary sacrifices. My decision-making is based on what would satisfy me. And this is the Western culture. This is many of us sitting here right now. It is me, myself, and I. To disappoint myself, to fail myself, to compromise self-worth would destroy me. This, too, is a religion. We've made ourselves to be, become our own gods. Now, listen very carefully. The things that I just mentioned here, family and self, our careers, our ambitions, our children, the things that we pledge our allegiance to, they're not blatantly evil things. They're actually gifts from God. They are blessings from God. The things that compete for our affections are actually good things. But once it becomes the primary way that we identify ourselves with, it is crossed over into the realm of deity. We deify things when we devote ourselves to them. Let me say that one more time. We deify the very things that we devote ourselves to. So family becomes a God. Self becomes a God. Our careers become a God. Our children become a God. When they become ultimate, they are now the very thing we worship and devote ourselves to. And that's why sacrifice is necessary in order to appease these gods. See, culture and traditions aren't always bad. But oftentimes, they run counter to the call to discipleship. You can't have it both ways. It's incompatible. You can't, you can't pledge your allegiance to your family and pledge your allegiance to Christ. You can't. God does not allow that. Stephen Um, a pastor in Boston and a blogger in the Gospel Coalition, this is how he defines the call to discipleship. Quote, the call to discipleship is a fundamental redirection of our human existence, a reorientation, an all-embracing turning about of our lives in order that our affections might be placed primarily upon Christ. It's a great definition, great explanation of what, what it means to be a disciple, a complete reorientation, a, cr- a complete realignment, where we turn away from old uh, affections and we, and we look to Christ 
and, and place our primary affections on him. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple. So the question again, what or in whom is in direct competition for your, reflect, your affections and allegiance to Christ? Who or what? So answering the call to discipleship calls for a new allegiance. So what does that allegiance look like then? The second call to discipleship that we see here is a call to joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. Verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Very important question that we need to ask and answer is, who is Jesus looking at when he's saying this? Who is it? Does everyone that's inside this room qualify to be his mother, brother, and sister? Most likely, he was looking at his own disciples. He was looking at his disciples, the 12 apostles. They are the ones doing the will of God. They are the ones living in joyful obedience to him. Now, what did their obedience look like? Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. To be with him and to be sent out to preach the gospel. This is what their obedience looked like. Here we have a summary of discipleship. Be with Jesus and do things for Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. Very simply, be with him and do things for him. And for the disciples here, specifically, it was to preach the gospel. The true family members of Christ are marked by faith and commitment. Trust and active allegiance Now, many of you guys, your gospel radar is going off now, right? It should. Your gospel radar is going off because DC is only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It sounds like Jesus is, 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 is saying that we got to obey in order to be a part of his family. Now, that, that's a common misunderstanding here. This, Jesus is not making a, a qualifying statement. He's rather describing what a disciple is. Does that make sense? This is not a qualification statement. This is what you need to do to qualify to be, my, be a part of my family. No, he's describing already who's in his family. He's, not ident- he's identifying, not qualifying who his brother, sister, and mother are. He is giving the evidence of discipleship here. Doing the will of God is evidence that one belongs in the family of God. Let me say that one more time. Doing the will of God is evidence that you are already in his family. You can't get into his family by obeying his will. No, that is by faith alone. Through, uh, it's, it's, it's grace alone that we get experience that. But what is evidence that you are part of his family? Doing his will, obeying his commands. We got we to gotta, we gotta understand the distinction here that, 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 that this is very important because we, we, can, we can be... Uh, misinformed to think that I could do something to get in. No. He's already ex- describing who's already in. So what he's wanting to do here is to contrast the appearance of discipleship and actual discipleship. A wannabe disciple 
and someone who is a genuine, authentic disciple. You guys know that we, we, God wants to give us confidence in our, in our salvation. Like there, there's actual evidence that someone is saved. Uh, that's so helpful, isn't it? Because how else will we know if we're saved or not? So that's why Jesus tells us to bear fruit. Fruit, right? Good deeds. Obey him. Do his will. And if you are, that is evidence of salvation. So he's trying to make a contrast of those that appear to be disciples and those who are actual disciples. Jesus' blood family here becomes an object lesson. Here's a lesson. Proximity to Jesus does not mean unity with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not mean you are united to Jesus. See, many of us who grew up in, in, in in in, in the Christian household we think that we are grandfathered into salvation because our parents took us out to church. We went to church three times a week. I went to church every Sunday, participating in Sunday school, Awana, because our parents made us. And so the assumption is, because they are faithful, yeah, I'm good. I'm on the inside then too. You cannot be grandfathered into the family of God. See, many of us were still living off the left. We were still living off of the leftover, leftover of our parents' faith. We are, we are riding on their coattail. Because of their devotion, their commitment, we think we are good. And all too, too often, I find this in the Asian American church. That we don't have our own personal relationship with Christ. That, that this conviction that we have in our discipleship is not our own. It's our parents, actually. There needs to come a time when our faith in Christ is our faith. That our walk with Christ is my walk with Christ. My convictions. My understanding of the Messiah. Not my parents. This is what it means for us to mature. This is what it means for us to be disciples of Christ. Not to base it off of my parents' faith, but it is my own faith. See, just because we go to church, sing a few songs, listen to a, Sunday, a sermon, Sunday in and Sunday out, does not mean we are part of God's family. Does not mean that we are on the inside. There are those that did so much more than that. They did so much more and they're still on the outside. Matthew chapter 7. One of the most scariest passages that we can ever read. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, does not mean that you're going to get into my kingdom. Just because you, you, you exercise, right, spiritual authority, just because you cast out demons, just because you do amazing things in my name does not mean that I know you. He actually looks at them and says, I never knew you. These people did more than just come to church, more than just hear a sermon, more than just sing a song, and still, yet, they are on the outside. Why? Why? Because religious activity cannot get us in. It's only through a genuine relationship with Christ. We can't, get in, we can't get in by association or religious activity. We get in through a genuine relationship with Christ. And a genuine relationship, the evidence of that, right, is being with Christ and being conformed like to his likeness, conforming to his will. See, many of us here, we don't have a problem with that concept of Jesus being our Savior. We don't, because you know how bad you are. 
right? So I need to be saved. So yes, Jesus, you are my Savior. The issue that we have is making Jesus our Lord. That's what we have a problem and issue with. Because I want to be my authority. But if Jesus really is my Lord, he's the ultimate authority. He, dictate, he dictates my life. I conform to his will. So are we, as Christians, are we conforming to his will or are we asking Christ to conform to ours? Let me clarify one more time. Obedience cannot get us in. Obedience is a sign that we are already in. It's evidence that we are already in. Lastly, lastly, the call to discipleship is a call to a stronger union. A stronger union. So we all know the saying, right? Blood is thicker than water, right? We know that saying. What's thicker than blood then? Faith. Faith is thicker than blood. Faith is what binds us to Christ. And this union, unlike every other union that we experience here in this earth, is permanent and everlasting. See, I, I, I love my family. I love my family so much. I want my children and, and my wife to trust me. I want to be reliable to them. And that's what I'm called to. Right? I'm called to be a good husband and a good father. But the sad and humbling truth is I'm going to fail them. I'm going to let them down. I'm going to disappoint them. And I've already have as a father and as a husband. I've let my family down. I let my wife down. I let my children down. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. I'm greedy. I'm prideful. I'm entitled. Our families will fail us. Your spouse will fail you. Your parents will fail you. Your relationships will fail you. And time and time again, as I'm meeting with you guys, that's the same story I hear again and again and again. It's just a fact of life. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. So why would we pledge ourselves to, to broken, inadequate, weak human beings? Why would we do this? Why would we pledge ourselves to anything in this world that is temporary and that's fleeting and that is fickle and temperamental? Why would we do that? It, just look at your life thus far. Reflect back on your, your past several years. Just track all the disappointing things that you experienced through your work, through your relationships, through your friendships, through your boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever. Isn't it true that the things that we, we pledge ourselves to in this world cannot secure for us satisfaction and joy forevermore? Like, we, we, we don't need to take a class to learn that truth. We know that it's true. But yet, we are tempted to pledge our allegiance to these things. So we're tempted to go all in. We offer ourselves to these things, hoping that we can experience true security and true satisfaction. See, my responsibility as a father and a, as a husband is not to get Jane and my kids to, to pledge their allegiance to me. No. I know myself way too well to have them do that. Rather, my responsibility as a husband and, and, and as a father is to direct them to the one that they can experience a permanent, everlasting union that will not disappoint, and that is to Christ. See, earthly possessions and relationships were never meant to secure, to, for us to experience security and satisfaction. 
Only Christ offers us that. Only Christ offers that to us and guarantees it for us. He calls us to be his disciples. He gives us the faith to believe in him. And that faith unites us to him so permanently and so profoundly that his life becomes our life. His death is our death. And this union cannot be broken. It cannot be, we cannot be separated from Christ. That's the gospel message. Romans 8, 33-35 and 38-39. and 39. This is what Paul says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, God, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Again, nothing, not even your sins, not even outside forces, not even natural disaster, not even cancer can separate us from this love that Christ has for us. The disciples experienced this, tangibly experienced this. Because why? Why? Even though Jesus called them to be disciples and they responded, what did the disciples do when Jesus needed him the most? They betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. Jesus asked Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John to pray with them in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did they do? They fell asleep. Who showed up at the cross? Only one did. Where are the others? The time that Jesus needed them the most, they were not to be found. What happened after Jesus rose again from the dead? Because if in any, any, any human relationships that we experience, when the, if, if the disciples did that to me, I'm done. But what did Jesus do? He sought them out. He sought them out. He fed them. He taught them. He loved them. He reminded that he still loved them. This is the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the profound union that will not fail us, that is permanent and everlasting. We don't need to chase around, chase this world looking for this. It's given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have a better and stronger union that we cannot experience in this world. See, although Jesus' allegiance to his father was unwavering, he was treated like an outsider. When he should be on the inside with God, he's treated like an outsider, a sinner dying on that cross. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross. Joyful obedience is embodied in Jesus' obedience, dying on that cross. But instead of being acknowledged by his father, his father chooses to ignore him, to turn his back to him. Why? Why? It is so that we can experience this union with him. It's so that as outsiders, we can be on the inside. See, for dying on our sins, the son who was profoundly, eternally united with his father experienced separation. 
so that we can experience union. This is the gospel, guys. This is the good news. Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, makes it possible for outsiders to be insiders. And we are called to respond to this call to discipleship. To relinquish our old allegiances and pledge our allegiance to him. To joyfully obey him. The loss that he gives, us, gives to us is not to suffocate us, is not to rob us of joy, it's actually to give us the fullness of his joy. So for those today that are not a part of God's family, I would ask you to consider to respond to this call. He's asking you, follow me. All you need to do is confess your faith in him, to repent of your sins and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And for those that, are called, that call themselves mother, brother, and sister of Christ, let's live in light of this identity. It is this union that frees us to let go of this world and to cling to Christ. It is in this profound union that we can freely exercise obedience with no fear because we are already accepted and approved in his children. May our union be the reason why we are doing the will of the Father for his glory and for our ultimate good. Let's do these things, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you would call sinners like us to be a part of your family. Those that were hopeless on the outside, you, you asked and invited in. God, I, I pray that you would help us to be your disciples. We can't do it on our own. We need your grace again and again. Help us, to, help us Lord, to see the, the, the eternal beauty and worth of your son, Jesus Christ. That all other things or people in this world just pales in comparison. Help us to obey. God, it's hard to trust in you. It's hard to trust that you have the best intentions in mind for us. That is why you give us your word. That is why you, you, you give us your law so that we know what, what, it, mean, what it means to, to experience your joy. And so God, help us to obey. And help us to always be reminded of this union that we have with Christ that you united yourself with us. I pray that it is that, that it will be in this profound union, Lord, that you would give us a confidence, give us security and satisfaction because we need it, we want it. We're tired and exhausted from chasing, chasing things that, are, that just leave us feeling more empty. And so God, we need you. So Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would you would mediate, that you would help us to experience that grace and amazing love of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.